You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, we are turning to, for a Christian, one of the most hopeful, glorious, and wonderful passages in all of the Bible. It's simple reading gives us such hope and such encouragement, such consolation as we endure the life that God has called us to live. Now, before we get to it, I think this would be a great place because this is a shift in the text to remind you that the book of Revelation is the book in the Bible that has its own divine outline. In Revelation chapter 1, Verse 19, Jesus told John to write everything that he had seen, that's chapter 1, everything that was at the time of John and the things that were at the time of John were the seven churches of Asia Minor that Jesus wrote to in Revelation 2 and 3, and then to write the things which will take place after this or after these things. And that phrase is repeated twice in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Right, so in chapter 4 and 5, we went up into the heavenly realm. We saw the throne room of God. We saw the scroll, the title deed to the earth, so to speak, uh, that no one was found worthy to loose its uh, seals. But Jesus came forward as the lion of the tribe of Judah and as the lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth. And he was found worthy to open those seals. And in chapter 6 and 7, we saw him open those seals. In the seventh seal were seven trumpets, which we discovered, you know, cataclysmic disasters found in each in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. In chapter 12 through 14, we took a break in the action and we went up into the heavenly realm. And from a heavenly perspective, saw all of the events in Revelation unfold. Chapter 15 and 16, we saw that in the seventh trumpet, there were seven bull judgments filled with what the Bible calls the wrath of God. And in chapter 17 and 18, the fullness of the consummation of that wrath was poured out upon a system and a uh, culture Uh, named Babylon, who in chapter 17 appears to me at least to be the religious system against God, and in chapter 18 seems to be the financial commercial system against God. Now after all of that, we have the glory of the second coming of Christ. You know, Jesus, I believe at this point in Revelation 19, has already called his church to be home with him. There have been many more during the Great Tribulation period, that seven-year period, who have given their lives to Christ. They've been killed because they would not worship the beast and his image, but instead would uh, worship God and became converted as a result, I believe, of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses and the two witnesses at the temple who were killed for their prophecies and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. But here in chapter 19, Jesus Christ literally, uh, physically, 
uh, visibly returns. It says in verse 1, it says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Now, I already told you that, uh, you know, we've been looking for the phrase after this, right? Jesus told John to record the things which will take place after these things. And we see that same phrase repeated in verse 1. After this, I looked uh, or I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. What this tells us is that there's a chronological development here in the book of Revelation. This event will follow the destruction of Babylon. And, and he hears what seems to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. I don't know. There's just something about that that encourages my heart. Maybe you are working and serving in the body of Christ. Maybe you're involved in planting a church or you are involved in serving in the church's children's ministry. Maybe you're leading a home group or uh, discipling someone. Maybe you're a personal evangelist. Whatever it might be, isn't it encouraging to see that when John hears the voice of those in heaven, he hears the voice of what seems to be a great multitude in heaven. I mean, there's just something about this that encourages my heart. Just understanding that, you know, at the end, we win. At the end, there are so many people who have given their lives to Christ and come to know him. And I, and I just think about the joy of for all of eternity, you know, meeting people and fellowshipping with people and having real depth and connections with millions and billions of people throughout all of eternity. It just sounds so wonderful. And so he hears this loud voice from a great multitude. Now they're crying out and they say this, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. You know, hallelujah, it, it literally means praise God. And uh, this word hallelujah is, is used, or hallelujah in some translations, is used four times in the New Testament. And uh, they're all found here in chapter 19, when Jesus returns, praise God, praise God. This is where we really have something to praise God for, is when Christ returns. For, and this is why they really praise, for verse 2, his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, I, I need you to see this. They are praising God. And, and I should say it more like this. If you're a believer in Christ, we are praising God. And, and this is specifically what we're praising God for. They say, verse 2, for his judgments are true and just. And then they describe how thankful they are that he has judged this harlot, this false religious, false commercial system. They're so thankful that uh, God has judged that system. And so they're praising God for his true and righteous judgments. They're thankful for his wrath being poured out upon 
Babylon. And, and I just wanted to say that, you know, here at the end of time, uh, as we know it, and at the dawn of the, you know, millennial and then the heavenly age, we will be singing out loud and, and declaring that God's judgments are true and just. You know, I think it's difficult for us to trust the Lord at times, although we always should. I think it's difficult for us at times because I think often we don't trust the knowledge of God. I've been reading recently the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis and have been just noticing and thinking about the wonderful sovereignty of God upon Joseph's life and Jacob's life and just everything that God was weaving together. And here's a man who was, you know, sold into slavery and cast into prisons, yet all the while God was blessing his life and preparing the future that he had cut out for him. Eventually he would ascend to the number two position in the most powerful uh, government on earth there in Egypt. And, you know, there's even a little line I love when Jacob hears that his sons want to return to Egypt and, and, and all of that. And he, and he, he declares, you know, my, my gray head is going to go down to the grave in bitterness. I mean, this is just the way my life goes rather than understanding that God was sovereignly working as the reader. You read in Genesis and you're reading, oh, God is doing this. God is weaving all of these circumstances together. And so I, I just wanted to, to say that I think if we had a bigger perspective of the knowledge of God, uh, we would respect his decisions, his judgments a little bit more, even on this side of eternity. This God who is infinite and unbound by time and space, uh, who sees not just the moment of the parade that, you know, an innocent bystander is watching, but he sees the entirety of the parade. And he knows what's first and last and in the middle. And he has access to all of the information. He's never had to revise his estimation of someone or something based on additional and new information that comes later. He already has all information and he is perfect and good. And so the decisions that he makes are absolutely perfect. And I find that, when, that we, we are so prone to argue with the judgments and decisions of God, but it is absolutely foolish. It's like my children when they were beginning to grow up and learning about coins and you know our american coinage the the nickel is worth five cents and the dime is worth 10 cents but the nickel is actually bigger than the dime and from their little perspective it's so hard you know they look at it and go but i, I want to pick the dime because it, it must be better than the nickel it's bigger after all but really, you know, with more information, they come to discover, oh, the dime is actually worth more than the nickel, even though it's smaller. And I, I think there are millions of times in, in our own lives personally where we are like the child crying out for the nickel. And God says, no, listen, please trust me. I have information that you don't know about. Take the dime, so to speak. 
And so they're crying out and just praising God for his judgments. And in verse 4 it says, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And so these 24 elders, they have their own song. You remember we saw these uh, characters back in Revelation chapter 4. Uh, we're not sure exactly who these elders are. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 uh, disciples, apostles, you know, or just 24 being a double representation of the number 12, just full and complete leadership in heaven. Who knows? But uh, these human characters, these elders, they fall down and uh, they they worship the Lord and say, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne, verse 5, came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. And so there's a commission coming from the throne to praise God. And, you know, the truth and the reality, because God is deserving of worship, and God longs for us to praise him, to praise him as God, and to fear him, revere him, so to speak. Not paranoia about him, but a respect for him. And God asks this of us as his people, not because he needs it. This is an important point to remember as you're ministering to others. He desires that worship and that praise and that reverence and respect, not because he needs it, but because we need it. When we are unwilling in our hearts to give it to him, it means that we are functioning other than the way that he created us. We are most satisfied in fellowship and reverence and worship of God. And so there in heaven, that will be our attitude and that will be our perspective and we will be filled with such great joy. I, I hear from people sometimes who say, man, heaven sounds so boring. Praising God, praising God, worshiping God. I don't want to do that. And, and hey, even the greatest worship service you've ever been to here on earth cannot begin to compare to the experience in heaven. But when that stuff happens in your heart in eternity, you're going to be so set free of all your bondage and baggage and issues and selfishness that there will be such incredible joy like you've never experienced on this earth. Then in verse 6, John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen, it tells us, is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so here we have really the last of the 14 different outbursts of praise that are found throughout the entire book of Revelation. We have the final song right here in verse 6 through 8. And uh, hallelujah mentioned one last time. And they are in a place of absolute awe and reverence and worship here towards God. Just rejoicing, exulting, giving him the glory uh, and praising him for his wonderful rain and and just just 
is so excited about who God is. And this is maturity, by the way, to be able to shift from just simple gratitude. That's a very base kind of thing. Lord, you did A, so I am grateful with B. But here, at the very end, we are just worshiping God in awe. Just thankful for who and what uh, he is. And, and they're thankful for the reign of God. You know, that, that he poured out his wrath on Babylon, but now he's going to reign here on earth. They're anticipating a coming and future kingdom. And, and they call God the, the God Almighty, the, the power of God. This, this refers to the omnipotence of God, that he's the all-powerful, absolute sovereign over us. And, and as they rejoice, as they sing, they are praising God because his bride, his people, have made themselves ready for the marriage of the Lamb. Now, this is absolutely beautiful the the idea that god's people can be married to him and that there will be this you know coming together with our with our god in the old testament this picture was used uh, in a negative sense in hosea to depict the people in israel in the way that they were committing adultery against god and in their marriage with God by uh, going after foreign gods and idolatry. In the New Testament, the picture is of the church and presenting themselves as a chaste virgin, clothed in white, pure and spotless, preparing herself for that day of marriage. And that's what is being sung about here, that this marriage of the Lamb has come and uh, the bride is ready and she's clothed with pure, bright linen, and the, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, in the you know the the biblical culture, there were three stages to marriage. You know, first there was the betrothal uh, season. This was much more firm and uh, legally binding than being uh, engaged and just asking someone to marry you. There was an actual agreement. That was established they were technically in one sense married but they didn't live together they didn't enjoy one another sexually they did not uh, begin you know to live as married people they were still separate from one another and then then there would be a day that would come where the groom would go to the bride in a set window of time and he would claim his bride and then after claiming his bride and consummating that marriage, they would then emerge and there would be a festival or a feast referred to as the marriage supper where they would enjoy one another. And really, that's a perfect way to describe a Christian's relationship with God. You know, betrothed to him on the cross of Calvary betrothed to him at the moment that you placed your faith and trust in Christ. One day claimed by him, I believe, through the rapture of the church, called home to be with him, and then uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb joined with him in celebration and absolute bliss for all of eternity. 
And this supper in those days would be greatly anticipated. And this supper here is greatly anticipated. And perhaps this supper actually even takes place on earth. We will find out. And so in verse 9, the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then verse 10, I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, a couple of things I should mention here about this. First of all, John is so overwhelmed that he bows down to worship this angel and the angel refuses that worship. This is helpful, especially when turning to the Old Testament, when you read of stories where the angel would receive worship. In the Old Testament, when the angel received worship, what you're seeing is a Christophany. You're seeing a pre-incarnate uh, visitation from the Son of God, right? So that's why he receives worship, because these angels who are not the Son of God, they do not receive worship. So an interpretive aid given to us here. But then also, uh, it says here, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now this is wonderful because what this tells us is that uh, all of the Bible, all of prophecy, all of Scripture testifies and speaks of Jesus. Now, this is incredibly important for a believer, a Christian, to receive. I wish I had more time to address it and talk about it today. But the reality is that all of Scripture points to Jesus. When you read of David and Goliath, to name a very popular example, when you read of David and Goliath and you see David taking off the head of Goliath, it, it, this isn't a, a story that's designed primarily to show us that we can overcome big obstacles and giants in our lives. No, David is a picture of Jesus who slayed the ultimate foe in sin and death and the devil. And we are the feeble little Israelite soldiers up on the hillside who, when they see the head of Goliath in the hand of David, are emboldened to attack the Philistines. And on and on we could go. Jonah in the belly of the fish pointing to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Isaac being offered by Abraham on Mount Moriah pointing to the crucifixion of Christ. But on and on through the Bible, every chapter, there's the testimony of Christ. It is pointing forward towards him. And so uh, the angel makes that very clear. If you're hearing teaching on any passage of the Bible, old or new, where you're not hearing the name of Jesus, you have missed out. Uh, I heard from a church planner just the other day who said that someone left his church recently because, well, they just talked about Jesus way too much. Well, <laughs> I don't know that that's possible to speak of him too much. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then John writes in verse 11 and says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful 
and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the return of Jesus. I believe this to be actual, literal, and visible. He comes on this white horse. The armies of heaven are with him. He's given a name, faithful and true. That's the definition of Jesus. He is faithful and true. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees all things. The many diadems that are on his head or the crown speak of his authority, the only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, his name. He's got four names in this description, one of them being unknown, and, uh, indicating to us that we will be discovering truth about Jesus forever and ever and ever. He will always be fascinating to us. Uh, his garments are dipped in blood. This is where the victory has come from. The word of God uh, comes from his mouth. And the armies, I love this, they're just there. <laughs> they're not doing anything. Their garments are white and clean. They have no weapons. They are not going to war. They are just going to witness him war. Uh, which is a great way to live life today, by the way. And he goes in and he strikes the nations that have come together uh, against each other and against him. And he begins to reign with a rod of iron as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we'll get to his reign in chapter 20. Then I saw, verse 17, an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And so this great battle ensues. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, the Antichrist, or the beast and the false prophet, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's a gruesome story, but it appears that there will be this great and final battle uh, here uh, before the millennial reign of Christ, which, which we'll get to in chapter 20, where Jesus will uh, throw some into the lake of fire, and uh, there will be a great victory won by Christ. And so the second coming of, of Jesus Christ it is a day that is yet future. It will not be secretive. Uh, 
Jesus said, like a flash of lightning in the sky, you'll know it when you see it. And so I greatly anticipate and look forward to this wonderful day where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will return for us. This is when the ills and the problems of the world will really begin to be wrapped up and solved. Set your hope upon him. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.